Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live. We'll begin today's show with a stunning announcement out of Israel. Is the Bibi Netanyahu era of Israeli politics over? I'll talk to Tom Friedman of the New York Times. Then, the strongman leader of a former Soviet Republic scrambled a fighter jet. The foe was not a hostile neighboring nation, but rather a 26-year-old opposition journalist. Will state-sponsored hijacking, as some have called it, become a new tactic for despots around the world? I'll talk to the historian Anne Applebaum and the Belarusian journalist Hannah Lubakova. Then, how did America, the world's wealthiest country, so badly bungle its initial COVID response? China virus. Was it Donald Trump? People think that goes away in April with the heat. Or was it something much bigger? Michael Lewis is here to tell us what he found. We didn't have a really respected and brave entity at the federal level to lead the response. But first, here's my take. In a country that's divided on almost everything, one area of bipartisanship in the United States is alive and growing. Fear of China. President Biden says, The Chinese are eating our lunch. Republican Senator Josh Hawley says they are well on their way to achieving their goal of world domination. Experts warn that China's Belt and Road Initiative and vaccine diplomacy are bolstering its soft power. Let's take a look at what is actually happening on the ground. China's secrecy and deception about the origins of COVID-19 have spurred increasing calls for thorough investigations worldwide including now from President Biden. Instead of being transparent and welcoming international efforts to figure out what went wrong, Beijing's attitude has been defensive and obstructionist, fueling suspicions and conspiracy theories. This is part of a pattern. Last week, China's ambitious trade and investment treaty with the European Union ran aground, largely because of Chinese overreaction. In March, the EU chose not to endorse the American characterization of China's actions in Xinjiang as genocide, but it did announce a small set of sanctions against four local officials and the Regional Public Security Bureau. As Stuart Lau notes in Politico, Beijing's counterattack came as a shock to everyone. It placed broad sanctions on the entire EU Political and Security Committee, as well as the Parliamentary Subcommittee on Human Rights, five leading European parliamentarians, and even academic experts who study China. As a result, Europe has all but pulled out of the deal. Or take China's relations with Australia, one of its main trading partners. 
Australia has become somewhat more assertive toward China on both trade and human rights, but has always worked to maintain constructive relations. Last year, Canberra called for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. In response, China had what can only be called a freakout. Beijing hit Australia with all kinds of trade restrictions, and the Chinese embassy in Australia issued an extraordinary charge sheet of 14 grievances accusing Australia of poisoning bilateral relations and demanding, among other things, that the country's media and think tanks stop writing negative things about China. In April, the Australian government cancelled Belt and Road agreements made with China. Or consider China's handling of its relations with India. Last year, Chinese troops clashed with Indian forces in skirmishes that netted China 100 square miles of land along their frozen tundra-like Himalayan border. The result is that India, which has long been wary of signing on to an anti-Chinese coalition, is now much more willing. It has banned a slew of Chinese apps, excluded Chinese companies from building India's 5G networks, and recently joined the US, Australia, and Japan in their largest naval exercises in over a decade. Meanwhile, Taiwan, Japan, and the countries around the South China Sea have plenty of their own stories to tell about China using aggressive military patrols and other forms of intimidation to assert its interests. China's current foreign policy is far removed from the patient, long-term, and moderate approach of the country during the Deng Xiaoping era and after. Back then, the central objective was to ensure that the country's meteoric economic rise did not trigger resentment and counterbalancing from other countries. President Hu Jintao spoke often of the peaceful rise to describe China's aspirations and strategy. Now Chinese diplomats embrace conflict and hurl insults in what is known as wolf-warrior diplomacy. What is striking about China's strategy is that it has produced a series of own goals, leading countries to adopt the very policies Beijing has long tried to stop. There have also been serious consequences for its global image, greatly diminishing its soft power. Negative views toward China among Americans soared from 47% in 2017 to a staggering 73% in 2020. And if you think that's a U.S. phenomenon, here are the numbers for some other countries. 40% to 73% in Canada, 37% to 74% in Britain, 32% to 81% in Australia, 61% to 75% in South Korea, and 49% to 85% in Sweden. If there is a single theme in international life these days, it is rising public hostility toward China worldwide. President Xi has transformed China's approach domestically and abroad. He has consolidated power for the party and himself. He has reasserted party control over economic policy, in recent months putting curbs on the most innovative parts of the Chinese economy, the technology sector, while lavishing benefits on its most unproductive one, the old state-owned enterprises. And he has pursued a combative, unpredictable, often emotional foreign policy. In doing all this, he is dismantling China's hard-earned reputation as a smart, stable, and productive player on the world stage. It all brings to mind another period of centralized politics and aggressive foreign policy, the Mao era. And that did not end so well for China. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started.
Benjamin Netanyahu has been a most dominant force in Israeli politics for decades. He's been prime minister of Israel for the past 12 years and served an additional three-year stint in the late 90s. But the Netanyahu era may be coming to a close as a coalition is now being formed to oust him. Joining me now is Tom Friedman, who was once the Jerusalem bureau chief for The New York Times. He's now the paper's foreign affairs columnist and the author of From Beirut to Jerusalem, a classic. Um, Tom, let's posit uh, initially that who knows where this goes, because there will be there need to be seven coalition agreements. Uh, Likud's lawyers will look at this. It might even go to court because it's not clear that uh, you could have Bennett as prime minister if the president had asked Lapid. So th there's a lot of complexity and this may play itself out over days. But what does it mean if, in fact, the Bibi Netanyahu era is over? If it is over, if it comes together with a national unity government in Israel, let me put it in terms that Americans could understand. This is Bidenism coming to Israel. It's a backlash against a leader who developed a personality cult, who um, basically lived by dividing people, um, uh, who is extremely um, uh, allegedly corrupt. He's now on trial for three corruption uh, cases. It's the triumph of people who believe in institutions, the rule of law, um, and decency. It is the beginning, potentially, of a Biden backlash in Israel. But let me ask you, Tom, when you look at some of the key figures here, Naftali Bennett is somebody who, on the issue of Israel-Palestine, I think it's fair to say, is more hawkish than Netanyahu. He has said he will never give up the West Bank. He's talked about how he took, uh, you know, he's, he saw nothing wrong with killing Arabs. You have Avidor Lieberman, uh, part of the coalition. I think you could reasonably say that Lieberman advocates ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, moving Palestinians who are even Israeli citizens um, in some cases off the land. Um, what, what does that tell us? How should, you know, should, should we really welcome this? So I think that if you're, if you think this is the prelude to Israeli-Palestinian peace, um, of course, that, that is not the case. Um, but what, what Bennett has been a strong advocate of, Farid, is a very strong autonomy for Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. And I think you could see a consensus forming in this new coalition, this potential national unity coalition, uh, around uh, more separation and more autonomy for Palestinians in the West Bank as a potential stepping stone for something else. Right now, Freed, the most important thing for American diplomacy and Israeli politics is to keep one thing alive. And, and, and right now it really is uh, in intensive care, the two-state solution. And I see this coalition at least potentially doing that because I think there is a common denominator for, for separation and for real Palestinian autonomy and less daily delegitimization of the Palestinian Authority, which was a staple of Netanyahu's politics. Tom, you've covered uh, the Middle East for 30 years. Um, when you wrote from Beirut to Jerusalem, you know, you, you were very hopeful about the two-state solution. You advocated it even then. Um, at this point, when you look at the encroachment of settlements, when you look at the radicalization of Israeli politics, uh, when you look at the degree to which Palestinian, you know, dysfunction remains, Gaza uh, being ruled by Hamas, 
do you do you understand do you understand and do you think that there will be traction for this idea that you are seeing growing on the Palestinian side and with some uh, liberal Zionists like Peter Beinart that maybe what the only solution here is going to be one binational state uh, in which you 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 give the Palestinians uh, political rights within Israel. I don't really see that happening, Farid. I think the best you could hope for, I, I do think we're in the one state reality more than we're in the two state reality, but I don't see it as a one state reality in which um, the Jewish majority basically gives full uh, equality to uh, the Palestinian uh, minority if you if you brought in the two and a half million Palestinians from the West Bank. Uh, but I do think we are in a, in a phase where the dangers to Israel of becoming an apartheid state uh, are becoming so clear, it became clear in the last two weeks here. Fareed, you know, um, we may be seeing in Joe Biden the last pro-Israel Democratic president of the United States, if you look where the rising left in that party is today. And therefore, I think you will see uh, a stronger move toward um, building more separation and creating a, a much stronger autonomy and preserving the possibility for a two-state solution. I think that's the most we can hope for right now, but I think that is a possibility with this new coalition. Tom Friedman, you're always so insightful on this. Thank you. Thanks, Fareed. Next on GPS, we'll dig into the bizarre story this week of Belarus forcing a passenger plane down, then arresting a passenger who was a thorn in the side of the country's strongman leader. Last Sunday's Ryanair flight 4978 started out as just another trip from Athens, Greece to Vilnius, Lithuania. But it quickly became a pawn in a major international incident after a security alert caused it to divert and land in Minsk, Belarus. Once on the ground, the plane was boarded by security officials who arrested Roman Pratasevich. The 26-year-old is a dissident journalist and a thorn in the side of Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, who has been called Europe's last dictator. Ryanair called the incident a state-sponsored hijacking, and it was widely and strongly condemned by Western nations. Let me bring in Hannah Lyubakova and Anne Applebaum. Hannah is a journalist from Belarus and a fellow at the Atlantic Council. Anne is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she published a piece on the incident titled Other Regimes Will Hijack Planes Too. It's really a must read. Anne, uh, explain this to us in historical context, because I feel like the last time we heard about Alexander Lukashenko, we thought he was on his last legs. He had lost an election. He tried to doctor the results. There were massive protests in Belarus. Many international observers, governments supported those protests. He seemed uh, flailing. And now this. Explain. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Lukashenko was uh, last summer, seemed to be very close to resignation, very close to leaving his job. Um, the entire country had turned against him. And remember, this is a country that is was created out of what used to be the Soviet Union. Um, although it has a long history, it had never been a state before. Um, and there was a uh, you know, there was a feeling that, you know, we as a nation for the first time really are united in saying what we want and what we want is to be a democracy. We want at the very least to elect our own president. Um, Lukashenko managed to stay in power. He, he, he lived through the crisis, um, partly because he escalated the level of violence that he'd been using um, and partly because he got support from Russia. 
Um, and so he was offered this hand of friendship from Putin, and that was clearly what prevented him from leaving the country and what made him decide to stay in power. Um, I don't think the fact that he's still there means that people are any less determined that he should leave or, or that they don't want he should leave, but the level of violence there is now at an extraordinary high. I, I'm not sure that people outside the country will leave it, but really understand what's happened. People are being arrested off the street. People are tortured in prison. People are raped in prison. Um, there have been several deaths in prison. Um, recently, a few days ago, a very young boy of 17 committed suicide in prison. Um, this is a very, very brutal regime now. Um, and the fact that they were willing to hijack this plane uh, shows the degree to which they are now willing to defy not only the rule of law in their own country, but also around the world. And Hannah, explain to us this 26-year-old uh, journalist. Uh, who is he and why, why is Lukashenko so uh, afraid or enraged by him? Tell us about him. So Roman Protasevich um, has become a journalist in the very young age. He basically got involved in all these political activities. Um, Roman is very... Uh, full of energy, he's an extrovert, he's very brave, he's very loud. Um, since 2019, he has been living in Poland and he joined the team of this most influential Telegram channel. Telegram channel is a social media network that coordinated the protest in Belarus and it's very popular in the country. And in November last year, he was added to the KGB terrorist list um, by by the KGB, which is the security uh, service agency in Belarus, which only shows that he is um, kind of... Lukashenko considers him a personal enemy because he's a blogger. He's the one who spreads information, um, who informs citizens both inside the country and outside the country about what's happening. And that's his only guilt. He was a blogger. And uh, that's why... Uh, but because Lukashenko is so scared of information, that's why... Um, he basically forced down a plane to detain Roman. And it feels like this is a, a some, somewhat cruder version of a Russian strategy, which is to say Vladimir Putin has uh, made it a point to attack opposition leaders of opposition uh, uh, movements, even when they're abroad. The, the message, and Lukashenko, I think, said this, uh, in recent days, we have eyes everywhere, right? The idea is you can't escape even if you leave the country. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's not just Russia, actually. Um, the whole phenomenon of what some are calling transnational repression is something that's growing rapidly. Um, we have examples of the Russians trying to assassinate, in some cases successfully, their you know, Russian citizens uh, in, in England. Um, in Germany, uh, we have examples of the Chinese kidnapping um, their citizens uh, abroad. Um, we have Iranian examples. Iranians have been murdering um, Iranian dissidents outside the country for a long time. But you're right that this has now accelerated. And you raised this, uh, this prospect in, in your Atlantic piece, but so I want you to, to spell out a little bit uh, the real danger is here because I think of this some ways as, you know, the way 9-11 exposed us to the reality that people could use, could turn planes into bombs. This reveals a reality that if an authoritarian regime wants to send up a jet into, into you know, space, it can force any civilian airline anywhere in the world down. 
So this is exactly why um, it's so important that the EU and the US and other democracies react really strongly to this new level of provocation. Um, uh, because ultimately, this is about breaking rules that are set up to help all of us. What are you know the laws of the sea, the laws of air traffic control? Um, the, the the point of those laws is to keep airplanes and ships safe. Um, once those are broken, once autocracies are able to freely break those. Uh, those rules, we are all going to suffer. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly how it will happen or when the next crash will be or when the next catastrophe. Um, but the use of air traffic control, the politicization of air traffic control um, in order to arrest a dissident is something that we that that has you know could have grave consequences for us all. Hannah, Anne, this is a very important issue and you're very kind to have uh, explained it to us. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Next on GPS, the great writer and reporter Michael Lewis set out to understand how America could have bungled its COVID response so badly in the first few months. What he found out will surprise you. He'll tell you all about it when we come back. I am not taking a big leap when I say that the U.S.'s response to the COVID-19 pandemic was subpar. For the wealthiest country in the world, to have among the highest per capita death rates is simply embarrassing. And that's just one metric. The lingering question is why, as in why did the U.S. fare so poorly? The great writer Michael Lewis has pointed his pen at that question, and the resulting book, like all his books, is fantastic. It's called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. Michael, the, the central uh, kind of insight, I think, in your book is that this goes beyond Donald Trump. This is a much deeper issue. How did you come to that? You know, I didn't, it wasn't my own views that, that led, led me there. In fact, kind of surprised me that I ended up there. But the, the, I went looking for, for kind of the best characters to see this thing through. If, and and, and w when, you, when you spent time with people who had been in disease control even before Donald Trump, they would have pointed out a couple of huge problems that would have made it difficult to us to respond no matter who was in the, in the White House. And, and, and maybe the first is, is just a basic and basically an absence of, of a public health system, that you've got these disconnected 3,000 people around the country, local health officers, with, with some guidance from the CDC, but also a lot of reasons not to completely trust the CDC. And that was sort of the other thing that, that came up again and again was just how the CDC itself had ceased to be any a centers for disease control. Um, Charity Dean, the local health officer who's sort of the main character of the book, says she wants to rename it the Centers for Disease and Observation, for the observation of disease, rather. Because whenever they, she was in a conflict, whenever she was like on the ground trying to control some outbreak of some other virus, she found that the CDC was more of an obstruction than, it, than an aid. And she, she actually banned them from her investigation. So she had told you that, like, that enterprise is just not set up to do what people think it's set up to do. Explain this more, because it really is at the heart of the screw-up. Uh, you know, the CDC gets, the, the first of all, is late, and then it has a bad test. Why do you think this is happening? Why, why was she, why was somebody like Charity Dean so frustrated with the CDC? Well, what she saw again and again, again, this, and all the, the information, the sort of the stories before COVID are so revealing. It, 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 what she saw again and again was that 
when you're trying to control an outbreak, it is inevitably controversial. You were walking into a, the clinic of a doctor who's spreading hep C with dirty needles, but the doctor has friends and influence. You are shutting down parts of a college campus because of a meningitis outbreak to stop you know, kids from dying. And, and people don't like it. So you're doing it over the objections of some fraction of the society. And when, when things got at all hot, the CDC would retreat. They like didn't want to be there. They didn't want controversy. So that was part one. Part two is like what they did want and that, that they, what they wanted were academic papers. What they wanted was, was what they wanted was um, figure out the science of whatever happened, write a paper about it. And and that's where the, the status was. And the problem with that as a, an incentive is that if you're waiting for like perfect data before you take any kind of action and the action is you write a paper um, that the, the, the disease outbreaks are over, that you you. The nature of disease control is sort of taking action with imperfect information in conditions of real ambiguity. It's like it's, it really is a lot like battlefield command. And and she just sensed that the institution had lost its nerve. You have this amazing uh, uh, moment where you describe how George W. Bush reads John Barry's book about the Spanish influenza. And he decides that. In fact, the U.S. has exactly, as you say, a very bad uh, national public health administration, and he tries to reorganize it. Uh, does it work? It does work. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's an amazing story, right? That Bush, you've got a, basically a traumatized president with 9-11 in the rearview mirror and Katrina's just happened. And someone thinks it's a good idea to hand him a book about the 1918 pandemic to read on his summer vacation. And he comes back to the White House and says, like, what's our plan? And and comes the answer, we don't have a plan. And th these this collection of people, particularly the two doctors, Kirk Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett, who sit there trying to noodle to figure out a, the answer to a, a very particular question. And it is, what do you do to slow disease before you have vaccine? Like, how do you minimize illness and death? And the conventional wisdom at the time, which is hard to believe, but it was entrenched in the public health community, was that you couldn't do much. That, that the thing like social distancing, school closing, all this stuff didn't work. And they thought that because in 1918, it seemed not to have worked. And so inside the Bush White House, these two guys, and they're real doctors, like an oncologist and an ICU doctor, um, re-examine what actually happened in 1918 They re and, and, and write persuasive papers about how actually the reason that St. Louis had a fraction of the death rate of Philadelphia was that they introduced these interventions uh, earlier in relation to the arrival of the disease. And this wisdom ends up being buried in, in a plan about how you intervene when you have a pandemic that, 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 is, that becomes the official plan of the government and it's in the CDC. Now, the irony here is the CDC was regarded as the world's great health organization, spread this idea to other countries. And like Australia, Australia has contained the virus using the playbook the CDC handed them. Um, so other countries executed our plan much better than we did. And of course, it's too simplistic to say it's just that plan. It was a plan for flu. But the plan, the plan could, was, was pretty easily adapted to COVID. And uh, and we did not, for, for I think a bunch of reasons, completely internalize the plan. Next on GPS, Michael Lewis will tell us more about the woman who predicted the severity of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
That story and more when we come back. When COVID-19 swept the world, it caught many by surprise. But some people sounded alarm bells early on. Dr. Charity Dean, a former California state health official, was one of those people. She'd spent her career fighting outbreaks of fatal diseases like meningitis and tuberculosis. She knew what these plagues could do and how to stop them. Her bosses ignored her calls for urgent action against this novel coronavirus until it was too late. She's one of the stars of Michael Lewis's new book. You have many fascinating characters in the book, but Charity Dean really is, is as you say, probably the, the principal one. Uh, talk a little bit about what is the most distinctive thing about this woman? It's the combination of having so much fear inside of her with the ability to act so bravely. She, her personal story is a lot like the Tara Westover story. They grew up in an evangelical community that didn't want girls to be really educated. They were just supposed to have children. Had to break with the, her entire community in order to get her education. Had been obsessed with viruses from a, as a small child. And, and she leaves, I mean, in many ways, lots of bad things happen to her. And she has many reasons to be fearful. She is fearful but adopts as a narrative, I need to be brave in order to do the things I want to do. And constantly sort of reminds herself that she is, that that's, that's who she is. She's Churchill, not Chamberlain in her parlance. And, and it turns out that's what you need to be to do the job she's destined to do, which is stopping people from giving infectious diseases to each other. And, and the side of this story that was just breathtaking to me, I never, I mean, have you ever worked, walked into a local public health office? I had not. But is when you walk in there, you basically are walking into a Netflix drama. It is, a, what is going on pre-COVID is, is so unbelievable uh, that, that, you know, it's life and death kind of every day and it's outbreaks once a week. And it's you, and you don't know what saved you that this this woman stood between you and a tuberculosis outbreak and you never knew it happened. Um, that's what interested me about her. It was it was the quality of the person in the situation. She says men uh, underestimate me. They think that my spirit animal is a bunny and in, instead it is a an effing dragon. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about. Something about her, which reminded me of your last book, The Fifth Risk, which is there are all these people, incredibly impressive, talented, devoted, who are not motivated by money, uh, who are not doing this for the, for the money. You spend a lot of your time writing about Wall Street and people like that. But d does it surprise you when you see these people with this level of dedication and hard work? And they're just doing it because they think this is an important this is important work. I. I've come to the conclusion that there's a separate gene. It's the money gene. And some people have it and some people don't. Uh, and the people who are really effective in public service simply don't have it. If they have it, they're frustrated because they're not getting paid. I mean, this woman, Charity Dean, walks away from three times the sum sh she could have made in, right away as, in private practice to take this job as a public health officer. And, and doesn't even think about it. It doesn't like gnaw at her that, that I should be making more. I'm worth this. None of, none of that crosses her mind. Um, so the, and instead, she's animated, and I think these other characters in The Fifth Risk are the same way, 
What gets them out of bed in the morning is not their bank accounts. It, it, it's some mission that they have identified. Like some, uh, I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to overstate this, but it's a calling. She has a calling, and uh, and it, it it overwhelms all other motivations. Like she doesn't need any other motivation. And the, to me, the, the the tragedy of all this is that we currently live in a society that does not honor these people appropriately. Because I think that I think we'd tease more of that out of the population. If if we created a culture of recognition around it and, and people understood kind of the sacrifices that some of these people made to do things for all of us. And you have a calling, Michael Lewis, which is to tell us all about this stuff in these just amazing, amazing books. Thank you. Thank you for reading. I'm sorry to have to add a very, very sad coda to this segment. Michael Lewis's 19 year old daughter, Dixie and her boyfriend, Ross Schultz, were killed in a car accident earlier this week after we had taped the interview with Michael. It is just a terrible tragedy. We send our condolences to the families and to all those who love Dixie and Ross. May they rest in peace. And now for the last look. The last year and a half has taken a toll on every aspect of society, from our mental health to our financial well-being. And now, new data reveals just how much populations are shrinking. It's not just the excess deaths from the pandemic. It's the other side of the life cycle, too. All across the globe, birth rates are falling. The first babies conceived after the pandemic was declared were born in December 2020. But that month, in South Korea and Italy, birth rates fell 10%. In Spain, births fell by 20%. And by January in Poland, birth rates were down by almost a quarter. In fact, aggregating 21 different countries, The Economist found births fell 11% in January 2021 over the prior year. The magazine also noted that countries with a higher COVID infection rate saw greater declines in their birth rates. When U.S. Census data from 2020 was published, much was made of the 4% decrease in births that year compared to 2019. But the sharpest drop-off in births came in December, an 8% drop from the previous year. And that trend looks to continue based on the few states that have released data for 2021. In fact, a survey last June found that a third of all American women were postponing their plans to have children or aiming for smaller families due to the pandemic. Demographers point out that a declining birth rate is the norm during such massive crises. But this is actually part of a larger trend that's been happening for decades in developed countries around the world. As GDP rises, with higher education and more women in the workplace instead of at home, couples marry later in life and have fewer children overall. Some of this is obviously a good sign. Gender equality and educational attainment are certainly worthy goals. A decline in teen pregnancies accounts for one of the biggest parts of the U.S.'s declining birth rate. I think most would agree that is a cause for celebration. And in a world of limited resources, there is a virtue to having fewer people on the planet. But the pace of this decline matters a lot. 
because when people stop having babies, the labor force shrinks, and with it, the tax base. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.